Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2 as we continue our study through the beginning of Luke in the Christmas story. If you lived in the first century world and someone had asked you if there was a more important person than Caesar, the emperor of the vast Roman Empire, you know what you would have answered? You would have said, what? No. The emperor at this time was Caesar Augustus, the ruler who built the vast Roman Empire, who founded libraries, who provided spectacles for the citizens of the empire, who boasted that he found Rome in brick and he left Rome in marble. There's an inscription that we date back to about 9 AD, which we can find in the Berlin, Libra- or Berlin Museum today, that describes Augustus almost more like a god than a man. This inscription talks about the birthday of Augustus being the beginning of good news. That's the Greek word that we know as gospel for the entire world. Listen to another early inscription. This one is held today at the British Museum. It describes Augustus this way. Quote, Augustus is the father of his divine homeland Rome, inherited from his father Zeus. Augustus is a savior of the common folk. His foresight not only fulfilled the entreaties of all people, but surpassed them. He has made peace for land and sea, unquote. When we look at how Augustus was described, he was described as this ruler who is almost godlike, who is this type of savior who brings peace and good news to the whole world. Surely, the hope of mankind rests in such rulers like Caesar Augustus, right? Surely, the good news is that we need someone like Augustus to give us our best lives now, don't we? We we need someone like Augustus who will will satisfy us with financial prosperity, who will entertain us with satisfying entertainment, who's going to bring personal or national greatness. That's what good news is, right? What someone like Augustus can bring. This contrast with Caesar Augustus is how Luke sets up the account of his eyewitness testimonies of the Christmas story. You see, as great as Caesar Augustus was in the esteem of the world, he was like dust. He was here today and gone tomorrow. He was like a a children's sandcastle that's built too close to the waves of the ocean. It looks glorious until that wave comes up and you can't even tell it was there. Augustus, in fact, was only an instrument used by God, unknowingly used by God, but used by God to bring about the true Savior of the world, the true Son of God, the true bringer of everlasting peace, the one with heaven's good news, one who is greater than Caesar, but one who in his birth that we will see this morning showed that his kingdom is very different, entirely different than the one Caesar's builds. It's not a temporary kingdom. It's not about fulfilling our desires in our best life now. It is about one that brings eternal life. It's an eternal kingdom, like the eternal life that he gives. So Luke records this for us, so that we would not try to seek our good news in the Augustuses of the world, that we would not try to find our salvation in our, whatever our current circumstances are or what they wish we wish they would be, but that we would find our good news and our salvation and the birth of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And that in doing so, that we would respond to him. As Luke shows that people responded to him in our account today. That we respond to him with joy and with faith and with obedience and with worship. And in fact, as we read our passage this morning, 
a Christmas story that so many of us know so well, don't we? But let us ask ourselves that question. How well do we know it? As you look at your life today, as you look at your life this season, where are you trying to find hope and joy? Where are you looking for good news? Who or what are you looking for for salvation? So let us hear and listen to Luke one more time of this Christmas account this morning, letting him speak to our hearts and remind us of God's sufficient good news in his Son, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's look at first how Luke describes God's sovereign plan for the Savior. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Notice how Luke starts this. He he starts this, this account with, in those days, not once upon a time. You guys notice that? He's recounting us the historical Christmas story, not a fabricated Christmas myth. This is a story that's anchored in the historical backdrop of a census of the Roman Empire by Caesar Augustus. The, the, the Roman Empire would conduct these censuses to, to, uh, for military conscription as well as to know how much taxes they can get from people. Now, although the Jews were, they were exempt from military subscription, uh, conscription, they didn't have to be part of the military, they did have to submit to their Roman overlords to, to, ta- to the purposes of taxation. So they participated in the census as well. Now, we know if we look at historical Roman documents, not everyone in the Roman Empire had to go to their own towns, but it's most likely that this is a Jewish tradition that that we see in the Old Testament, potentially, and then that that probably Herod instituted uh, just for that area of Judea. But this, this story isn't primarily about Caesar in his census. Caesar is just an instrument in the hand of God, an instrument of God's providence. God is moving the entire Roman Empire to get one couple to Bethlehem. Look at verses 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was in the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So here's Joseph. And as we've been looking at, Joseph's already been having quite a difficult time and, and, and potentially we see from the context a lot from the scorn he was likely getting from his re- continued relationship with Mary, who's pregnant, not with his kid, reportedly what she's saying that the angel told her from the Holy Spirit. So certainly he's faithful, he stayed with her, but certainly there was scorn and contempt from, from his society. And, and just, in fact, I was reading this this week when I was reading through this, I was reading through this first in Greek, and I got to that, that part where it talked about uh, Mary was betrothed with, with child, and I go, oh, I must have translated that wrong because that just doesn't sound right. It must be Mary who's his wife with child. That, that fits, right? No, no, I, I, that's right. It, it, it's, it's supposed to stand out that they're still engaged. She's pregnant, but not with his baby through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is a, this is a difficult situation that Joseph and Mary find themselves in. They're trying to be obedient to the Lord, but it's not easy. And now on top of all that, he's being forced to take his pregnant fiance who's getting close to her due date on a 70-mile trip south from Nazareth to Bethlehem. There's no Amtrak. There's no Southwest, Southwest Airlines. They're walking or potentially riding on an animal down south. And all of this, why? Not to visit family, not to have a great Christmas celebration, so that they could get taxed more. 
right? All this has happened so that the Roman government can give them more taxes. That's nice. Merry Christmas, right? And so Luke tells us that Joseph has to travel to Bethlehem because he is of the house and lineage of David, and he has to be registered in David's hometown. Why is that significant? Luke doesn't tell us the significance like Matthew does in his gospel account. Luke assumes that his readers understand the significance of this, that 700 years earlier, God used the prophet Micah in the Old Testament to prophesy where the Savior, the Messiah Christ, would be born. I was trying to explain this to to Isaac, my five-year-old this week, of of how, how amazing it is that 700 years before, God already declared where this would be. And I'm like, Isaac, do you understand how long 700 years is? And I'm trying to explain it to him. And he goes, wow, that's a long time. In 700 years, I might have died and gone to heaven. And I go, no, if if Jesus doesn't come back in 700 years, you definitely will have died. And I sure do hope that you've trusted in Jesus and you trust in Jesus and will go to heaven. But 700 years, that. It's, it's, it's unfathomable for my five-year-old to comprehend. It, it's, it's unfathomable for us to comprehend how that 700 years before, God had prophesied to the prophet Micah, in which Steve read this morning, five, Micah 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrata, who are too little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Bethlehem is the place where the one from the days of eternity, is going to be born as ruler, as king of Israel. The one who Micah describes later is going to be bringing salvation and peace and a return from exile. So as you look at the Christmas story, here's what Luke is doing. Luke is looking at the Christmas story from two different perspectives, from two different viewpoints. He's giving us an earthly setting and a heavenly setting, an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective, an earthly viewpoint and a heavenly viewpoint. You see, there's an earthly setting to this story of Joseph and Mary who are just looking at what's going on and are just suffering. And are just having a difficult time upon everything else that's going on that, they're, that, that, that it's just not seeming like a great Christmas for them. I, I know that they didn't understand what Christmas was, but you understand what I'm saying, right? They're scorned by their community. They're forced by the government to travel 70 miles while she's pregnant so that they could be taxed more. And Luke's pointing also out that there's a different viewpoint to look at this story. There's a heavenly setting where God is not going, oh, no, I missed that one. Right? God is not asleep. God is not absent. It's that God is sovereignly and providentially at work through everything that's happening. He is moving everything that's happening for his good purposes. Maybe you can relate to Joseph and Mary this Christmas season. Maybe you're going through difficulties and hardships. I appreciate John Paul praying for that earlier because it can be a really difficult season for some people, especially thinking of loved ones that are no longer here. I want you to be encouraged, my friends, that the God is still sovereignly and providentially at work. He knows and he understands and he desires to use that for his good purposes and for his glory. So Luke is, is wanting us to take a step back from this situation and understand what's going on here. 
He's showing us that the most powerful person in the world, Caesar Augustus, is directing the senses of his vast empire, trying to gain military might and gain financial strength. And yet all of that is just an instrument in God's sovereign providence to move Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem in order to fulfill God's promises and prophecies of the Savior he made hundreds of years earlier. Let's look then how Luke continues the story. Look at verses 6 and 7. Luke says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So while Joseph and Mary are staying in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born. And, and like all babies at that time, still many babies today, they, they wrapped him with cloth. They, they're, they're wrapping his fragile little limbs in order to keep him protected, in order to keep him comforted, the, the baby wasn't born with shining incubator lights from heaven to keep him warm at night. Right? The, the baby wasn't born fully strengthened with, the, with, with, with angelic muscles. He was a weak and frail child who, who missed the confines of the womb and was comforted by being wrapped in swaddling cloths. He was a normal human baby. And, and they laid the baby in a manger. It's a feeding trowel used for stable animals like cattle and sheep and goats. And Luke explains the reason for this is because most translations will say there was no room in the inn. However, I think there's two translations that do, I think, a little bit better job with this. The, the Christian Standard Bible and the New International Version translations, I think, are a little bit more accurate when they say there was no guest room available. See, the, the, the word that Luke uses here for in or for guest room, it's actually used again in Luke chapter 22, verse 11, to speak of a guest room, the guest room where Jesus is going to take his disciples and be prepared for them. It's a very different word in Greek from the word that's used for in that you see in, in the parable of the Good Samaritan. So it's, see, it's not, it's an image in our mind. It's not like you're going through, through Oakhurst in the summer, right? You're looking for a hotel to stay at in Oakhurst in the summer. And what do you see in Oakhurst in the summer? It had hotel rooms. No vacancy. That's why they're building three giant new hotels up the road, right? Because everything's occupied during the summer. And so, oh, you go, they go from hotel to hotel. That's not quite what's going on here. In the Middle East, most people stayed in other people's homes. They practiced this hospitality which is probably what Joseph and Mary did. But the home was so overcrowded with visitors because of the census that there was no guest room available. That's why those translations translate it that way. And archaeology has shown us the same thing, that, that if you, if, the way you can picture this is most typical first century houses in Palestine not only had a guest room, but they also had a stable for family animals as part of the house. The stables were either located downstairs for a, a nicer two-story house, or most houses had a stable that's connected to the main room of the house that's connected by a half wall so that, that people didn't have to go outside to feed their animals, that they could just lean over the half wall and feed their animals in that way. And, and, and that's what Luke's describing. This is where baby Jesus was placed, in this feeding trial with the family animals because there's no guest room available. Now think about what all this means. God the Father sovereignly moves the entire Roman Empire so that God the Son could be born in Bethlehem so that he could be born in an animal feeding trough. I mean, could God have planned this differently? When I was talking over the story with Isaac this week, I asked him that. He goes, yeah, right? God 
If God can move the entire Roman Empire to get this family to, to, to Bethlehem, couldn't he make sure there's a guest room available? He could have. I mean, by the context of the passage, he's shown his sovereign power and control over the timing and over the whole Roman Empire. So the only conclusion that we can draw from what Luke is telling us is that God planned according to his good purposes for Jesus to be born in that manger. Planned for him to be born in that humble condition, to fit the humble purpose of his mission, that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, through this passage, Luke is reminding us that God is sovereign. God is sovereign as he is providentially planning the Savior's humble mission. God is sovereign as he's planning the Savior's humble mission. We saw this from, from Paul earlier, that John Paul read for us earlier from Philippians, that though Jesus was fully God in his nature, he humbled himself by emptying himself. He, he emptied himself not by giving something up. It's not that Jesus gave up parts of his divinity, but Jesus emptied himself by taking something extra to his divinity. He, he also took on the nature of humanity. And even more, he took on the humble position of a servant being born in a manger and then dying on a cross. And did you notice in the passage that, that John Paul read this morning out of Philippians that Paul says when we think about what Jesus did in his humility, that matters to us. That is applicable to us. That as we consider Jesus' humble birth, Paul says that should affect us, not just in our thinking, but in our attitudes, in our behavior. That we are to have the same attitude among ourselves that Jesus demonstrated. See, the point of the baby Jesus in the manger is not just about a story that we can tell. It's not just about, that it gives us great songs to sing away in a manger, Right? It's not just about the story and the song. It's not just about a knowledge. Oh, I know that that's the Christmas story. It's the, the point of that Paul says in Philippians 2 is that if that is our Savior, if that Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, then I will, fumble, I will follow in his humble example. I'm going to be humble like him. Well, what is that humility? That hum humility is not Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh. Okay, humility is not thinking, oh, look how bad it is for me and look how sorry I feel. That's not humility. That is the complete opposite of what's going on with Jesus. Jesus is humbling himself not to have a pity party because his tail fell off. <laughs> Jesus is humbling himself not because he's thinking of himself, but because he's thinking of others. He's, he's thinking of others rather than himself. He's doing this for the purpose of loving others for the glory of God. Humility means you realize that it's not all about you. Humility is focusing on loving others out of your desire to glorify God. That's the example Christ set for us in Christmas. He left heaven and humbled himself to be born with a human nature and born in a manger. Why? Be out of his love for us in order to save us for the glory of God the Father. So if you're here this morning, and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're more focused this Christmas season, or even not this Christmas season, but if you're more focused on your interests and your preferences and your differences more than the interests of others, then Paul would say, and Luke would say, the Bible would say, you don't understand the Christmas story. If, if you're more focused on what you're getting from others, not just about what's under the tree, 
but even things like being within the body of Christ. If you are, are, are thinking of what you're are getting from the church or, or what you're not getting from the church more than how you can give of yourself to be a blessing to your brothers and sisters in Christ in the church for the glory of God, then you don't understand the Christmas story. If, if you are living out of your selfish ambition and conceit, instead of counting others as more significant than yourselves, then you don't really understand the Christmas story. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we are followers of a humble Savior. We, we, as we sang in the, that glorious hymn last week, Come thou long-expected Jesus. Come to earth to taste our sadness. He whose glories knew no end. By his life he brings us gladness, our Redeemer, shepherd, friend. Leaving riches without number, born within a cattle stall. This the everlasting wonder Christ was born, the Lord of all. That's our example. That's our example that if we are followers of him, we follow that example. But then Luke continues. He continues then to describe this good news of what this, it means for the Savior to come. Look at verse 8 with me. Luke continues to say, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. You see, this birth of Jesus is not just a private moment. It's not just a moment for, for Mary and Joseph. It's not just a family moment or not just a moment where the families can have with God. This is good news that God wants to share with others. He wants this news to be shared, to be celebrated. In particular, Luke points out that there are these shepherds watching their sheep in that same region of Bethlehem. There's nothing inherently special about these shepherds. They had no privilege. They had no power. Some people even look down upon shepherds because of their occupation. These were just normal guys, normal blue-collar workers just faithfully doing their jobs that night. They're taking turns and watches over their flocks. But on that night, heaven comes to share with these average shepherds the good news about the good shepherd born in Bethlehem. Look at verse 9. Luke continues to say, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Just stop for a moment. Just picture this. Can you picture this? I, I'm not picturing what you see on Christmas cards or cute little Christmas graphics. I mean, trying to picture actually what Luke is saying here. You're just going about your job. You're doing your job, and all of a sudden, a mighty angel of the Lord appears. Not the fat chubby kid angel right? This is not the picture of the fat little chubby kid. This is talking about this, this mighty angel of the Lord, one of those angels of the Lord that killed 180,000 soldiers in one night by himself. And then you have, on top of that, you have the glory of Yahweh, which Acts 26 describes as a flash of radiant light shining all around you, right? I mean, just, just imagine, this is not a movie, right? There are no special effects. Hollywood is not involved. This is real life. It makes sense when Luke tells us that they were filled with great fear. Actually, that's putting it a little mildly, I think. I, I like how the Christian Standard Bible puts a footnote in there where it says that there's an idiom that, that Luke's using here. It's a, it's a Greek idiom that is saying they feared a great fear. They were, they were fearfully fearful. They were so afraid that they were afraid. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was fear upon fear. They were terrified. But look how the angel responds. Look at verses 10 through 12. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths 
and lying in a manger. I love this. The, the angels tell the shepherds to exchange their great fear for great joy. You, you see, that great fear turns into great joy. Think about this, what, what's going on here in verse 10. What's the logic of verse 10? Look at verse 10 with me. They don't need to be afraid. Why? For or because. They're giving the reason there. Behold, emphasis. This is important. The angel's bringing them good news. This is actually a verb here. The, the angel is good newsing them. The whole reason the angel is there is to give them the gospel of good news. And what's the content of that good news? What is that good news about? It's about great joy. They're trading their great fear for great joy. And joy not just for them. Joy that's meant to be shared for everybody. They get to be the first to experience God's good news of great joy that's meant for the whole world. And then the angel goes on and to speak of what this good news of great joy is about. That the angel says this day or today, that's fulfillment language. That's a fulfillment of, of prophecy language. That God is fulfilling his prophecies and promises from the Old Testament through the birth of this child in David's hometown, Bethlehem. And notice through all of this, the angel never gives the baby's name. You see that there? There's no mention of it. His name is Jesus or anything about Jesus. It's not about necessarily the baby's name. It's about the baby's identity, the titles of who this baby is. This child is God's promised Savior, God's means of deliverance and provision and salvation. It's not going to come through the Caesar Augustuses of this world. It's not going to come through any human power or any human effort. There's no ruler that can bring about God's salvation. There's no religion that can bring about God's salvation. Only through the work of what this child will do will come God's salvation. This child is God's Savior who is the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah or anointed king. See, when we talk about Christmas being the birth of Jesus Christ, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Right, so, so we have Steve Riley over here. Steve's his first name. Riley's his last name, right? Jesus Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's like saying King Jesus, right? If we say King Steve, King is not his first name, right? King is a title. So we'd say, all hail King Steve, right? You can, sit, you can tell him that after church. But, but the child being named here is Jesus, whose title is the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah, King Jesus. And then the next title is just mind-blowing. This is just mind-blowing if you look there. The angel talks here about the Lord. That's the Old Testament name for the covenant God of Israel, Yahweh. He's talking about the Lord Yahweh. So we would expect, we would expect for Luke to say, or the angel to say, that this child is the Messiah of the Lord. Or we would expect it to say that this is the child Messiah from the Lord. But the angel doesn't say that. The angel says, this, is, this child is the Christ, comma, the Lord. The Christ who is the Lord. This child is able to save because he is the Messiah who is God himself come in the flesh. That's what we call the incarnation. As we were talking at Sunday school today, Right, if you have two versions of chili, if you have chili, you have chili con carne. Right, you have one that's normal chili, and I have one with meat. You know which one I prefer. But the, the one with meat, that con carne, is that idea of with meat. So incarnation is Jesus has come in meat and flesh, that God has taken on flesh. The Messiah is God come in the flesh. And the angel gives them a sign so they could go and confirm the truth of this for themselves. But if you look at the sign there, 
in verse 12 is kind of underwhelming, right? God has come in the flesh, the Messiah, Savior. You're going to find a baby swaddled in the manger. That's not the sign that I'd expect. How about you, right? That's not glorious angel or angel, glory from heaven, Messiah, God come in the flesh. There's a baby in the manger. But it's to remind us that Jesus isn't the type of Savior that we often expect. He's not mighty Augustus ruling from Rome. He's an infant lying in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. He's come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if the shepherds had any doubt about that sign, that doubt was quickly dissipated. Look at verses 13 and 14, where Luke tells us, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest. Glory at excelsis Deo. On earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Again, can you just picture this in your minds? Right? This, this first angel is like an announcer standing on stage before the curtain. And then suddenly the curtain rises, and there's a multitude of heavenly hosts that appears with this angel. Now, this heavenly host is not the angelic glee club. Okay? This angelic host is used in the Old Testament scriptures to refer to the armies of heaven, the angelic armies of heaven. They're regimented and they're marshaled, but not this time for battle, but for the praise of what God has done through the birth of the Savior. The situations of Jesus' birth may be very humble, but this, this, this is a reminder that all heaven is declaring that Jesus is not just some other religious teacher, not just some other religious option, that he is the Savior. He is God's Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And look how the angels comment on this glorious event in verse 14. Here's what, this is heaven's, heaven's commentary on what's going on. They start by saying, glory to God in the highest. Some translations will help explain what does it mean in the highest? Glory to God in the highest heaven. This is God's plan of salvation by God's grace to God be the glory. He has provided the salvation that we need that we could never earn for ourselves. We could never earn it. We could never deserve it. We could never be good enough. We could never be religious enough. God had to provide it for us through the Savior. And then, then the second line, often we've seen it on greeting cards or, 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 or traditionally as the King James version of and on earth peace, goodwill towards men. And you may be looking at your Bible is saying, my Bible doesn't say peace, goodwill towards men. That's because that, that translation that the King James has actually is not reflected in the oldest and best New Testament manuscripts we have. That's why every other modern translation, the ESV, the NASB, the NIV, the NLT, they all render this as on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased or peace on whom his favor rests. This is important. God provided peace. God has provided salvation, but not in a way Augustus has. Not just so that, for, that everyone who just touches the Roman Empire. This is specifically to those he favors with his grace, to those who would experience his grace. Salvation, Luke's telling us, is not based on our goodwill of trying to accomplish our salvation by our own good efforts, or but just by being around things that are of Christ. Peace comes to those like the shepherds whom God gives eyes to see and hearts to cherish what he has done through his provision of the Savior who is Christ the Lord. As John would state in his gospel account, to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 
So Luke records this heavenly message because this message is not just for the shepherds. This message of God's gracious provision of salvation is for us all. See, here's what Luke is saying, that, this, that, that for every reader of his gospel, both those past readers, those present readers, and those future readers, that everyone who reads this gospel are the type of people who need a Savior. There's not a single person who's going to read this gospel who does not need a Savior. That the story of the shepherds is our story. That the good news of great joy they received that night is offered to us as well. In fact, if you are visiting with us this morning, and you are not a follower of King Jesus, we want to say welcome. We are so glad that you are here visiting with us this morning as we celebrate Christmas. That, that this, this is good news that Jesus has for you. See, we often think of Christmas. We think of Jesus as the baby in the manger. But we need to remember as we read through Luke that Jesus did not stay a baby in the manger. He grew and he lived a perfect life as the Son of God. And he died a horrific death on the cross for our sin. Why? Because this baby was born to die. Luther said when we think of the wood of the manger and the cross, it should make us think, or think of the wood of the manger, it should make us think of the wood of the cross. And that, that's what we should be thinking here. You see, this baby was born to die, but we were the ones who deserved death. We were the ones who rebelled against God to deserve death. That, that although God created us, we rebelled against God. We never, neither glorified God, we didn't worship God, we didn't give thanks to God. We tried to rebel against God, commit insurrection against God, because we tried to live as God instead of him. That's what the Bible calls sin. We sinfully rebelled against God. And so we deserve the wages for sin, which is death. And so we need a Savior because we've sinned against the God of the universe. And so we're separated from our relationship with God. We're destined to have to pay the penalty for that sin for eternity. But God sent his son, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord, who came and he died on a cross in our place as our substitute to bear the punishment that we deserve for our sin in our place. And he rose from the dead to victoriously conquer sin and death and offer the forgiveness that that brings and the grace that that brings and the reconciled relationship with God that that brings all as a free gift of grace to you. It's a free gift. Nothing you can earn or deserve, but Jesus earned for us. And you can receive it if you would repent of your sins and place your faith or your trust in Jesus. And, and, and you can do that this morning. What a wonderful gift to receive this Christmas season. Do you need good news? Do you need to know how you can be reconciled to God, how you can be, have your sin forgiven, how you can have Jesus bear your shame and your guilt? Do you need that? Please don't leave this morning without asking someone how. We would love to answer your questions. We would love to tell you more about this gift of grace that Jesus offers in his good news of the gospel. Ask the person who brought you. Ask any member of our church. I'll be at the back of the sanctuary after. I'd love to chat with you about that. This is good news for us all. And for my brothers and sisters in Christ here this morning, notice something about what Luke says here, about the news of the Savior announced that very first Christmas. Notice that God did not intend this to just be a private celebration. This is not just a family moment. 
This is not just a personal moment between Mary and Joseph and God. God intends for the birth of his son to be shared with all parts of creation, from those who tend sheep to those who watch over them in heaven. There's discussion about things like the nativity scene, right? Of who was there when, and oh my goodness, the, the magi weren't there with the shepherds, and how many animals were really there can fit in a family, family stable. I get that there's, there's questions there, but there's a point that we miss if we focus on that. Here's the point we miss. Look at all of those that God shared this with. Look at the diverse types of people that God brought into sharing this moment of rejoicing and celebrating what he has done through Christ. See, God intends for this good news to be shared. And yes, shared means that we would share those who don't know about this, that they could join in the celebration, but also shared for, with those who do know about this, that we would share in the excitement and the celebration of what this means together as the body of Christ. See, how do you know if you really believe something is good news? If, if you know something, you see something, you hear something, how do you know if you really are really believing that's good news? You can't wait to share it, right? It, it, the best type of news is the news you hear and you want to you talk to someone else who knows that, who's, who's heard that, or who you can tell about that so you can celebrate it together, right? You see a new movie, and you're so excited about what happens, and you don't want to spoil it for people, so you go to try to seek out, have you seen it, have you seen it, have you seen it, until you can find someone else who's seen it, so you can celebrate that together. The best type of news is the news that you celebrate together, is the news that you share together. That's what we're trying to do. That's, what we, that's why we gather together as the body of Christ on Sunday morning. That's why we're here this morning. That's why we're gathering for the body of Christ on, on Tuesday for Christmas Eve. Because God has set an example that the Christmas celebration is not just a private moment, but it's a collective sharing of the celebration of Christ by the people of God. Now let's look how Luke concludes this account. As he tells the story, the historical account of what happened, and then he tells us, about different reactions, different responses to the Savior. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So as the angels depart, the question then remains, how will the shepherds respond? They clearly recognize that this message is from the Lord. Are they going to show unbelief like Zechariah? Or are they going to embrace this message like Mary? As we think about Luke 1, those are the examples set for us. What will the shepherds do? Look at verses 16 and 17. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So Luke tells us they went with haste, just as Mary did in Luke 1 when the angel had talked to her. This isn't about how fast they traveled right? This isn't about, wow, those shepherds can move. Man, look how fast they can go in those shepherds' gowns. Woo! This isn't about the speed of their travel. This is an indication of their obedience. They believed what the angel said, and they were diligent to obey the call to see the sign that the angel talked about. And Luke tells us they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. They found everything exactly as God said it would be. God has kept his word exactly as he said it would be with the sign. And it's a sign to point to something greater that God would, would keep his word 
exactly as he said it would be of what this child would do to be the Savior, Christ the Lord. And what is the shepherd's response when they see the sign exactly as God had said? They became the first human witnesses of Jesus. The angels had declared this, this. Now they're declaring this. They're making known to everyone what the angel had told them about the child. No one had to tell them to do this, right? They didn't have to go hear a sermon from the angel of, okay, listen, you're going to have to tell people about this, and you're not going to want to, and you're going to be scared about talking about this in your Christmas gatherings, and so here's your pep talk to go be witnesses. They didn't have to get one of those. You see that? The angels didn't have to tell them, now we're going to need you to tell people about this to get this, this, this holiday season. No, that, that's not what happened. They, they shared with other people why. Not because they were supposed to. Not because they were told to. Because they just couldn't help it. Right? They just couldn't do anything else. They couldn't help themselves. They had to tell other people about this good news because the best news has to be shared. See, if you're struggling and you're saying, okay, I'm getting together with my non-Christian family this Christmas or I'm getting together with my non-Christian friends this Christmas or uh, at my office Christmas party and, oh, I, I, I just... I just have to do better and, and just try to be a better witness. And I'm just going to make myself do it. That, that's not what the Bible's trying to tell you. The Bible's not trying to, to say, oh, shame on you. You've got you to do this better. That's not what the Bible's saying. The Bible is saying, you're really not convinced of the good news yet. It's not that you don't believe, but it's that you need to, to dive in and look at what God has done through Jesus until you have such, he has rekindled that delight in your heart. Then of course you're going to share. Because we get dull to these things, don't we, as Christians? We've heard the story, we know the gospel, we've heard the Christmas story, and they become dull to us. And so we don't see why we need to share them. So we need to be awakened afresh to the joy and delight of what God has done so that we, of, of course we're going to share. What else would we do with this good news? And then Luke ends the account then by giving two different responses to this good news that the shepherds are sharing about this child, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. He's giving two different responses, two different receptions, two different reactions to the birth of Christ. It's almost like Luke is asking us as his audience, I've given you even more than they've gotten here. How will you respond? Look at verse 18 for the first response. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. So, so the first reaction, Luke tells us that they're all who heard this wondered at this. The New King James says they marveled at this. The NIV says they were amazed at this. They, this seems like a good response. This is marvelous and amazing and wonderful news. But if you start to read through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that people often have this reaction to Jesus. There's a lot of people who wonder at, at Jesus' teaching. There's a lot of people who are amazed at his miracles. But Luke's going to show us that wonder and amazement, they're the right reactions initially, but they are not the same as faith. That's not the goal here. Amazement is the right initial response, but amazement isn't enough. And Luke compares it to the second account. Look at verse 19. He starts with, but in contrast to them, look what Mary did. Verse 19, Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Mary didn't just wonder at these things. Mary wasn't just amazed at them and then just move on with what she had to do for the day. She treasured these things. 
She stored them up in her memory. She's pondering it. She's thinking on them over and over. These are visual verbs, right? They're giving this picture as if Mary has a, a, a safe or a storage box in her mind where she puts her most precious memories to protect them and to make sure that they are available to think upon again and again and again. She's preserving what's going on, this news, for further consideration. She's protecting herself from forgetting these truths. She's keeping the good news about the Christ as her treasure. You know, later in Luke 8, Jesus is eventually going to tell a parable about how the kingdom of God is like a sower who goes out to sow his seed. And most of the seed lands on the path of the rocks, the thorny ground, that there's some initial amazement and wonder, but there's not genuine salvation. But there's some seed that lands on the good soil, and the soil takes it in and bears fruit a hundredfold. And Jesus interprets this parable to his disciples, and he says, that's like those who hear the word, who hear the good news, and hold it fast with an honest and good heart. That's the type of picture that Luke's describing Mary doing here. She's not just hearing the good news about the birth of Christ and just wondering with amazement about the news. She's taking it into her mind and into her heart as her treasure. Do you see the difference that the contrast Luke is setting up between the first people in verse 18 and Mary in verse 19? We're going to see something similar with the shepherds in verse 20. Look at verse 20. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they'd heard and seen. Now Luke doesn't tell us that the shepherds treasured what happened, but Luke shows us they treasured it, doesn't he? Because they had become those now who worship God. They're being described as those who are filled with glorifying and praising God. What the angels were doing in verses 13 and 14, the shepherds are now doing with their lives going forward. And we don't know anything more else about these shepherds. Luke surely did. Luke tells us that he gathered these eyewitnesses' accounts and put them together. So Luke surely had connected and talked to some of these shepherds. He knows what happened, but he leaves us with this lasting picture of the shepherds. What, what, this lasting picture of what, how did they respond to the birth of Christ? Their lives were characterized by those who were filled with glorifying and praising God. They treasured what God had done, and their lives were filled with praise. If, 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 if you understood what they understood and seeing what God has done, how could they not be filled with, with, with not just singing, but living out joy to the world for the Lord has come? And then Luke ends with one last picture. Look at verse 21. One last response. And at the end of eight days, when he, Jesus, was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now I asked myself as I was studying this, why is this here? Why does Luke include this historical account at the end of his story? Why does Luke end the account this way? I think the best explanation is it shows the obedience of Joseph and Mary. That, 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 that what God has done is, is not just a, a one-night thing of, of celebrating with the shepherds in the manger, but they responded and did exactly what God had directed through his angel in chapter 1, to name this child Jesus, which means God saves. They weren't just amazed at what God had done. They had placed their faith in God as their treasure, and that's evidenced by their obedience. Do you see the difference between amazement and faith? That's the contrast that Luke's setting up here. Do you see how the faith that treasures the news of Christ is different from those who just wonder at it? It's not enough to just be amazed at the Christmas story. 
It's not enough to just be amazed that God loved us enough to send Jesus. It's not enough just to be amazed at the Christmas traditions and the Christmas songs and the Christmas services and the Christmas remembrances. Yes, we should be amazed at those things. We should be amazed at what God has done, but being amazed is not, it's not, not enough if amazement doesn't lead to faith, if amazement doesn't lead to treasuring Christ as Savior and Lord, worshiping Him and obeying Him. If, if that's not where amazement ends, then that amazement's empty. So, so Luke would have me ask you, this is the contrast and the question that Luke would set forward. Are you just amazed at Jesus? Or have you placed your faith in him? Are you just amazed at Jesus? Or is he your treasure? See, Luke's point here is that people are going to respond differently to Jesus' birth. What's your response? Again, if you're visiting with us this morning and you're not a follower of King Jesus, but you're starting to be amazed at what God has done and, and, and what Jesus offers in this salvation, please don't leave this morning without having some of your questions answered. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus and his gospel of salvation. And my Christian brothers and sisters, as we hear this story one more time, as we celebrate one more Christmas, let's not just be amazed, but let us treasure what God has done in sending Jesus our Savior. Let us be determined that we're not going to just go on with the celebrations until we have dived into God's word to a point where our minds and our hearts then are treasuring Christ, the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let's find our hope and joy in him this Christmas season. And then throughout the next of the new year, let's, let's not try to find our answer and good news in the Caesars of the world. Let's not try to find our answers in the Caesar-like idols or conditions in our lives of, of what you have or don't have or wish you had. Let us, but let us treasure the good news of the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Let us worship and glorify him with our songs as our Savior, and let us worship and obey him with the obedience of our lives as our Lord.